Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Klon Kitchen, who joined us at AEI in February as a senior fellow focusing on the intersection of national security and defense technology and innovation. Klon studies how emerging technologies shape modern statecraft, intelligence, and warfighting while focusing on cybersecurity, AI, robotics, and quantum sciences. Before joining us here at AEI, Klon was the director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Technology Policy. He's also worked on cyber strategy at the National Counterterrorism Center as a senior program assessment officer at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and as a lead analyst on the Al-Qaeda senior leadership at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Klon. It's my pleasure. It's very great to have Klon Phoebe today because, you know, these, these hot issues right now, technology, the big companies, security, and what, what gray war is happening to us. And, and then there's China. And Klon writes about all those things. And yeah. is, uh, he's really made quite a, um, an impression on AEI. He's yeah, joined us rapidly. Yeah, I think it's rare to bring and, those together. And uh, we're just very happy to have you. Uh, and it's nice that you were at Heritage and are no longer. You're now with us. Uh, so that's good. There's a credential there, but also a forward progression. Let's call it that way. I think so. Uh, I'm allowed to say those things in a nice way with my colleagues at Heritage. <laughs> so let's start with technology. So the big companies are getting a black eye, you know, Apple and Google and Facebook. Uh, are they? Are, but others say that these are the crown jewels of our economy, and they've done more innovation and made us more productive than any other inventions in the last 50 years. So where are you on this? Are they forces for good or evil? Uh, yes. So, uh, one, I think they, they, I mean, by the numbers, they are the crown jewel of our economy. They are the driving force in, in a huge portion of of our national economy, and they remain the envy of the world in terms of um, the technological capabilities and opportunities that they're producing. Um, it is also the case that many of them, uh, particularly social media companies, um, are at the root of a lot of the social disruption and frustration that is, exp that is presenting itself politically and, and sociologically. Uh, we, there are different opinions as to, as, to, as to their specific role on that. The thing I'll say is that, one, these companies have proven themselves not to be ready for the responsibilities that they have assumed. They, they, they do exercise a great deal of influence in society. But then, two, um, Americans are fortunate to be able to exercise a great deal of, um, of influence over over all of these things, right? They're, so Facebook is powerful because we use Facebook. Um, they didn't steal that influence, we, we gave it to them. And so there is, um, I think, some shared responsibility here as a society as we think about how we move forward with these companies responsibly. So you mentioned social disruption and tensions, and that sounds sort of like a domestic policy issue and sort of the raising of our childrens in this new world. and. You know, I have four children, and do you have five? Or? I have four. You have four also. And but two dogs. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, so let's just, what do you mean by that? What, what's the thing about Facebook or Amazon or Apple that you think is uh, causing the greatest problem? 
What, or what is the problem they're causing that you think is the most severe? Well, so I, I would even tweak that description in terms of what they're causing. I, I, I tend to think of them as amplifying some pre-existing human nature problems, right? So I don't think, when we talk about social media, I don't think social media is creating anything new uh, as much as they are allowing expressions of human nature that exceed anything we've known previously in terms of scale and speed. So let me give you an example of concretely what I mean. It's always been the case um, that um, advertising and media has emphasized the most salacious, the most bloody, the most kind of provocative content. We've seen that in the newspapers of, of old, right? I mean, the whole the phrase Bad of... news sells. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, if it bleeds, it leads, right? right? That That precedes social media. So there's that says something about who we are and what we're attracted to. So when we talk about algorithms and, and content uh, curation, the reality is, is that these algorithms and these platforms are giving us what we want. It's just that we tend to want the wrong stuff. But this is happening at a size, at a scale, and at a speed that I do think is different. And so we're feeling the, the tremors that this creates sociologically uh, more acutely, and it's and it's frankly having a greater political expression than perhaps it has before. So you think it's helping us to hate each other more than we used to hate each other? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying it is all the reinforcement mechanisms of social media. So if you want clicks, if you want followers, it's to be as extreme as possible. And I don't know to what degree people actually feel the way they express themselves. But it's definitely incentivizing the the worst expressions of ourselves, um, and you know we have we have integrated these capabilities into our lives before fully understanding them, and then the companies themselves developed these capabilities without any understanding of their implications. And so, what do we do about it? Well, I recently wrote an article uh, for the Dispatch acknowledging some of the things that you and I are just talking about, but then ultimately saying, I actually think that the most efficient, most impactful way to deal with this is for users to vote with their feet. Um, that, that, that the regulatory op- offerings that have been presented thus far, there's no reason to believe that they would actually result in the types of outcomes that people are, are being kind of driven toward. And instead, if you, want to, if you want to send a clear market signal, stop using the platform. Right. If, if, if we have agency yeah. and we've forgotten that. And I think that's actually something peculiar uh, to American citizens. I think it's something that's really important. And I would love to see us exercise that more aggressively. What would you say about there's a lot of stats that there's actually very few people take Twitter as an example that are on Twitter and also actively tweeting and engaging. And so a lot of us tend to view this, I think, who are on Twitter a lot, as like this is the new public square, this is how people, this is civic discourse now. Maybe is is there a case to be made that that's just overblown, that this is really just a very small segment of opinionated people who are at the political extremes? Yeah, so there's definitely a spectrum between the different uh, social media yeah. expressions. Twitter is among the most insular, s- smallest grouping of people. I mean, it really is. In the military, we have this phrase called a self-licking ice cream cone. That is definitely yeah. Twitter, right? Where it's just a self-sustaining small group of people who, who are talking to one another. Um, you know, other social media companies are very representative. So Facebook is, you know, billions of people. I am 
you asked, Robert, you asked the question, what's the problem with these companies? I think the majority of them are driven by a false understanding of human nature. I think that they are idealist. I think that that has driven them to adopt a type of of posture where they accept what they would call creative destruction as just part of the cost. And so when they see this kind of social, what I'm describing as social disruption, they actually just write that off as kind of the tax. Like, well, this is what this is what innovation and advancement requires. And so we're willing to just kind of create the chaos. I actually think that's not right. Um, I think that misunderstands a, a number of fundamentals. Um, but I think it's the best explanation for why we're seeing what we're seeing. Now, this doesn't engage things like how Apple's working with China and that kind of stuff. But Well, let's get to that in a minute, but I'm just going to stay on this a little more. So you've expressed the common thought that social media has exacerbated our political divisions by making us angrier and more likely to express negative sentiments toward each other in a way that is unpleasant. And so, as I said, it maybe makes us hate each other more than we ever have, which is terrible, terrible thing. And I get that. And your answer on that was sort of, well, let's just stop it. Let's, let's, let's walk with our feet. Um, but then you've hinted a little bit at the, the sort of other negative consequences, uh, which involve certain populations. And I'm, I don't want Phoebe to get upset here, but I'm going to mention a subset of Americans, Fun. and that is teenage <laughs> girls. Not me. Like, <laughs> not you, I know. But but there is, among parents, there's this concern that some of the social media applications are particularly bad for teenage girls. Is that right? And can you do anything about that? Well, so as the father of three daughters, yeah. uh, none of my kids are on social media. The only social media I'm on is Twitter, and that's purely professional, and I'm still looking for ways to get off. Um, I can tell you that body image issues and self-doubt and peer pressure, those did not just spring out of social media. That's been there forever. That has been there for a long time. That is not to say, however, that again, because social media does kind of, it finds, it finds those points of pressure within us and it pushes in on them. And so social media to get clicks, you know, exacerbates it. Yeah, well, it does, and but but like so, Instagram and, and teenage girls, it is it can simultaneously be true that Instagram did not create body image issues within teenage girls, while also being true that, but it does exacerbate them. It it does create a false understanding of what everybody else is like and how you don't measure up to that. But when you said the companies have this responsibility and they're not living up to it, aren't you aren't you sort of a, pointing toward those Wall Street Journal uh, pieces about? Facebook, that they knew that there was a problem and they didn't do anything about it and they could tell by looking at their, that bad stuff was flowing and they just sort of let it happen. Is that what you're talking about? No, I actually, I don't quite buy, buy into that aspect. I, the, the way those framings, those tend to be too simplistic, right? Because I just don't think that's the case in my engagement with these companies and with a little technical understanding of how this works. Here's the two fundamental challenges, I think. Number one, we're dealing... Um, We've got incentives moving us the wrong way in terms of, so any for-profit company that's doing algorithmic content curation is going to generate more income by keeping people on the platform longer. That's the way it works, right? The longer you're on the platform, the more ads you're going to see and the more information I learn about you to be able to target those ads more capably. Okay, well, there's no question as to what type of content keeps people on, and it's not the good kind. 
right? And that, so we have a perverse incentive where any company who has a fiduciary responsibility to produce a profit is going to be at least tempted to emphasize that kind of content. The second problem is a technological one. So right now, the, the, the algorithms that we use to, to curate content is really good about saying like what will get clicks and what will keep eyeballs on the page. What it's not good at yet is it, it isn't good at factoring in alternative outcomes that you would like, things like thriving or you know mental stability or these, these kind of soft psychological things that play into it but are very hard to code into it. And now you might have a company that would decide that for the sake of a long-term healthy consumer market, we're going to actually de-emphasize certain content, understanding that that in the short term would prevent them from being on longer, but it makes them more likely to be a sustained user over the course of the long term. So somebody could make that decision, but we haven't figured out on the computer science side how to, how to really factor that into the algorithm yet. All right, let's turn to security. Uh, how are our foreign adversaries using technology to harm America? Well, any way they can. Um, <clears throat> so when we talk about emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, uh, just as an example, um, it's being used in it, it's being used in every way. I mean, this so artificial intelligence is an example of what we call a general purpose technology, meaning it's the kind of advancement that's going to have wide-reaching implications across virtually every industry and, and sector. And so, you know, take a nation like China. China is trying to leverage artificial intelligence to bolster its economy, to build new markets, to build new capabilities, and then to use those profits and strength to, you know, outcompete the United States or or influence global marketplace but to that that sounds like a fair competition. So well, if that were happening fairly, yes. However, the things that and so just on that one issue, what causes a disruption in the free marketplace? is that the way China's doing that is one, stealing intellectual property from the United States and others. That's how they're actually getting the capabilities. But then two, they partner their government with their industry in such a way as to where the industry becomes a, an extension of their state. And so an example, the Chinese telecommunications company Huawei, the reason Huawei was about to have a 50% share of the global 5G marketplace is because the Chinese government was subsidizing it. And so Huawei would then go into Europe, for example, and they would offer their services for a third of the cost of anyone else, which would then gain them huge market share. But then they would be leveraged by Beijing as essentially a technical collection spy agency. Right. So that that's a huge marketplace uh, perversion. But I thought you were going to merge the security demands with the social uh, media manipulation to say, well, Chinese bots or Russian bots are sending bad messages that exacerbate our divisions and using technology to do that. When in the past, they wouldn't have been able to get their messages into newspapers or television news. And that and are they doing or am I wrong about that? Are they not doing that? Are, are they not trying to influence the way Americans, maybe even make Americans be more divided with each other? Certainly they are. Um, part of that... Some of the things that have been historical strengths for the United States in the context of, of cyber actually are presenting themselves as challenges. So you're, you're kidding. So we're a free and open society. Right. That's been awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. we, have, we are thriving because of that long term. However, the barriers to entry for a, for a hostile foreign government to get on something like Facebook and then 
use that as to spread misinformation. Yeah, is very easy. Very easy. And stopping it is next to impossible. Is that true that 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 those companies couldn't see what that something was coming from China or coming from Russia? Well, number one, they they're smart enough to where they're not doing it from China and Russia, yeah, right? Yeah. So now what 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 the companies are good at is identifying what they call inauthentic accounts or inauthentic uh, activity. So they've actually gotten really good at that. Um, but again, when we're talking about nations like Russia or China, they have the resources and the technical sophistication to bypass that. So it, it won't be a sufficient strategy to say you can turn that off completely. There's a level of social resilience that we're going to have to build up um, and, and kind of a a type of sophistication that consumers are going to have to to adopt to be able to discern that thing. The problem is, is that we're actually going in the opposite direction. We're we're losing our grip on truth. We're losing our value of truth, and so and they're and they're contributing to it without a doubt. Now, one last thing on security. In, in, you know, I'm we're here at a think tank. You know, we have documents, we have records, we have opinions. Mm. And in the old days, you know, it was all on paper. It was in a file cabinet. If somebody wanted to see what was going on, they had to break in. You know, I think what I'm getting at is, um, be, is has technology made it easier for people to spy on us and basically know everything that you're doing or Hal Brands is doing or Corey Shockey's doing or I'm doing? And is there just nothing we can do about that? Well, um I want to say two things. So one, uh, having spoken with our uh, IT and security people, I'm actually thoroughly impressed. So on a number of range, on a range of issues, they have shown a proactive ability to uh, prevent problems that have hurt other institutions like ours. So I've actually been very impressed with our our group. Uh, Two, I still assume we're completely owned. I mean, if I were China or, or Russia and I wanted to know... Uh, you know, what is, so at some point there's going to be a Republican administration someday. And I wanted to know, okay, what is the likely foreign policy thinking that's going to drive that administration? AI is at the top of my list. I'm totally going to spend what I need to, to own them. And I'm not going to have to spend much because we're not the NSA, right? We, we, we couldn't function as we need to as an institution if we were adopting cybersecurity practices that made us you know, impregnable. Yeah. Well, no one is impregnable, but if we tried to maximize that, that security, it's just not a, it's not a good trade, right? That doesn't make sense. Um, I this term owned is he says own owned. They, and that means that they know everything about us. They own us if they know everything about us. Well, I mean, Robert, I, I I could, I could put on a pair of blue overalls, walk into this place. And as long as it said something about computers, I could plug a USB into any computer I wanted and I would have this place, right? And 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 that's just not hard. So let's just take another building here in Washington, the Pentagon. Hmm. Is the Pentagon, uh, secu- is this information, Secretary of Defense Communications with his staff, is that secure? Um, well, yes and no, uh, which I'm giving that answer a lot. Um, so there was reporting just a couple of years ago about how Russia um, had... Uh, gotten a hold of um, internal DOD communications and networks, even the White House NSC networks. So they were actually, so a lot of information actually transits unclassified systems because classified systems are so locked down, they're clunky and a pain to use. 
And so a lot of political leaders will default to using, you know, Secretary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, used her unclassified uh, BlackBerry precisely for this reason, because to operate securely is uh, cumbersome and difficult. And so to the degree that people abandon security practices and they start using unclassified systems, which we know they're going to do, we target those systems and you get everything that's on them. But the classified systems are secure. The classified systems are more secure. So I'll just give you an example to help you understand. So um, we we will often what's called air gap um, highly secured servers. So that means that there is no physical connectivity between a classified box and an unclassified box, right? There's nothing touching. They don't touch at all. We have ways of jumping that gap. And the bad guys do too. So everybody who's actually in this business will never talk about, you know, absolute security or anything like that. It's simply a matter of trying to get the risk level down to an acceptable range where you just say, okay, this is an acceptable level of risk and we just have to absorb that to do business. So I'm glad you brought up our looking out at the world. Uh, do you, do you think that, that we know what uh, the head of the Chinese Communist Party is saying and doing on a daily basis or communicating? I'm very confident in uh, our technical capacity. So our cyber ninjas are the best in the world. They're, they are sophisticated and, and really, really good. Um, that being said, on China particularly, um, about three years ago, it was discovered that a, um, a, a CIA employee had helped the Chinese government to f- dismantle our human intelligence network in China, and we've been very slow to recover from that. And then on top of that, with the disclosures from Edward Snowden, uh, the Chinese government realizing what we were capable of has made a very strong effort of securing themselves te- from technological collection, and they've done a good job. Fun. You and I were just talking about before this um, the Axios story that came out yesterday that talked about the Biden administration struggling to fill thousands of vacant cybersecurity positions. Um, do you think? I mean, even if our our top minds are are great at this, why is it such a struggle to? fill these positions, and are we being outpaced by our adversaries on uh, cybersecurity? Well, so the underlying truth is that the United States is not producing the volume of talent that the industry requires. We're just not producing the skills right now. Um, And one of the things that's actually allowed the United States to, to be as successful at this as possible has been our ability to attract the world's talent, right? We could get the best from everywhere and, and, and keep them. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I oppose things like, uh, you know, not granting even Chinese students access to come and study. I think that needs to be managed. I think there's some obvious care that needs to be taken. But generally speaking, we will cut our own throat if we cut ourselves off from global talent because we're simply not producing the volume domestically that is required. Um, now, this is where the debate comes in, like, well, how do you solve that? You know, do you need government to come in and incentivize that type of education and training? Uh, do you need to create new pathways? I mean, all of the skepticism of those things is completely found. I mean, it, I don't know that I can point to any type of a work program that's meaningfully improved anything. Um, at the same time, I think we understand that the status quo is unsustainable and that, you know, so long as we are unable to meet the demands, we've got key cybersecurity requirements that are going to go unfilled. I saw a few companies were doing um, uh, cyber training for veterans, which seemed like that could be. Yeah, this is the whole, you know, learn to code yeah. argument. Um, uh, 
Uh, I think anybody who wants to do that uh, can. There's plenty of opportunity. But expecting that people are just going to stop being a bus driver and start coding Python, I don't know how realistic that is. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the big companies again uh, just for a moment and then merge it with the security issue and our adversaries. To what extent are the major technological companies in the United States participating or helping our adversaries do things we don't believe in? So I describe, so I say that the national security burden is now a shared burden between government and industry. Yeah. Um, and I actually wrote a, a long form piece on this in National Affairs with Yuval and, and Adam White on, on this issue specifically, that the types of technologies that are going to shape and win future conflicts are overwhelmingly developed in the private sector for commercial purposes. Things like artificial intelligence, robotics, quantum computing, that kind of thing. Um, on top of that, these companies are legitimate global players now in terms of they have geopolitical interests. They're, they have... Um, they have markets. They have markets. They have human capital footprint that transcends nation. I mean, like, they're yeah. legit players. Exactly. And so... Um, there is no scenario in my mind where the United States is able to secure itself absent a deep partnership with industry. I think that should be voluntary and not coercive. But I think if we're going to secure our nation, we're going to have to secure these uh, or we're going to have to partner with these companies uh, in doing that. So they're just they're players now. Um, for a long time, um, they have had to adopt certain practices to have act to keep access in certain markets, particularly the Chinese market. If you want to do business in China, you've got to comply with Chinese requirements. And those requirements have just been kind of turned up and up and up over the last several years to the point where the companies are actually starting to scream uncle and leave. So uh, Yahoo recently pulled out, LinkedIn, which is owned by Microsoft, recently pulled out. And that was in direct response to some um, elevating uh, legal requirements, reporting requirements that they were going to have under Chinese law. Um, I think you're going to see more and more companies doing that. I think essentially the Chinese government is is telling companies to choose a flag. And uh, I think, thankfully, most American companies are choosing the right flag. Well, I'm glad you say that. That makes me feel good, um, you know, because we have a lot of people at AI who will be very critical of certain private sector players, the NBA, yeah. others who have caved to Chinese pressure. But uh, I don't know that I completely agree that it, I completely buy it that it's uniform. You know, you say you say a lot of companies are doing the right thing and that's great. But for those that aren't, should we prohibit them? Should we be more uh, coercive with you know, United States law? Well, I'm all for naming and shaming, and I do I do that quite a bit um, in terms of just calling them out and telling them where I think they're being hypocritical with even the worldview that they articulate. You know, so Apple is a great example. I use Apple products; their products are phenomenal. Uh, at the same time, Apple has made an explicit effort to identify itself as the company that cares about privacy. Tim Cook has come out and said that privacy is a hu fundamental human right, and yet. No company has capitulated to Chinese requirements more than Apple. Um, and, and those requirements go directly to the privacy question because China is asking them to reveal details about their customers. Is more that than that. So Apple has literally turned over the servers of Chinese users to the Chinese government. That, that is now managed by the Chinese government. Apple has actually kind of stepped back. That is now actively managed by the Chinese government, including the encryption, underlying encryption technology of those communications capabilities. So that I'm, I'm all for it. So when we think about, however, 
legal coercion. I'm open to the idea of having, um, so for example, if you have contracts with the Chinese government, I think it's completely rational for us to say, fine, but that means you're not going to have contracts with the U.S. government. We, for security rationale, cannot accept um, a company who uh, has given deep access to the Chinese government to then have deep access to our inner workings. Even if you somehow legally separated the two entities um, you know, on paper somehow, the point is, is that you have shared resources, you have shared insights, and we're not going to make ourselves uh, vulnerable to that type of exploitation. Okay, I have one more question about this interaction of technology with um, especially China, but uh, foreign countries. We've been reading a lot about how um, a prominent Chinese tennis player sort of disappeared yes. from the scene in China because they, they want her to disappear. And if you read the reporting in the paper, it basically reports on how any effort to communicate within China using the Internet about that issue immediately gets expunged. Yep. So we have a billion users of the Internet in China who can't see or read information about an issue that they might care about. Why is that? Why can't we go through that? Why can't, if American technology is so great, why can't we, we why, 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 how can they shut their internet down so, so effectively? I don't, I don't understand how, given all of the powers of technology, we can't just say, well, too bad, we're still communicating. Let's like Radio Free Europe. In Radio Free Europe, doesn't matter what Russia did. I mean, I guess they had certain things where they tried to block the channels, but we could communicate to people behind the Iron Curtain. Hmm. But on the internet, it really is shut down. They cannot, a user in China cannot in any way find out what's happening in the Western world. Well, it's not quite that comprehensive, but but here's the, so we like to talk about the internet as this kind of, this 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 online paradise that transcends borders and, and like we love that idea and it's so appealing. But the reality is, is the internet lives on servers and the servers live in geopolitical space. And so, the servers that control the internet in China are controlled by the Chinese government because they're in China. And so when you have that level of control over the infrastructure of the internet, well, then you control the internet, okay. right? That's that's essentially how it works. Now, could we break through that temporarily? Yeah, we could do all kinds of stuff, but it would only be temporary because it would be easily reconstituted. It would likely push them deeper in, which makes it more difficult for the Chinese users and for us. Um, and it would it, it wouldn't be at scale, right? So essentially, the way this works is is they have um, essentially active content filters that are looking for words and things, and they're using AI uh, in large part. And they grab it and they pull it down before it's ever you know um, before it's ever uh, posted. Now we could change that for a while, but then they would just adjust it, right? And so. This is this is the problem. <clears throat> Here's the formula I tend to use: defending nations means defending networks. Defending networks means defending supply chains and infrastructure. You can't get any of those things without the other. And so, what China is doing is, it has an understanding of its national security that includes denying Western influence inside the country, um, and therefore they are. Um, securing their networks to accommodate that concern. 
And that means that quite independently of any of our efforts to decouple or any of that, they're decoupling. So the Chinese government just caused, um, they, have a, they have their version of Uber called Didi that had listed in the United States. Yeah. They just told Didi, you're no longer going to list in the United States. They're, that's coming down. And they're, now they're going to list in Hong Kong because Hong Kong is owned. Right? We're going to see more of that. And it doesn't matter if, if, if the United States wants that to happen or doesn't want it to happen. The Chinese government has made a decision that decoupling from the United States, particularly from a data perspective, is essential to their national security, and they're pursuing it. So what are the things about America that the Chinese people are going to insist they want to see hmm. or consume? Well, I mean, as, as, as they have a, a growing middle class, there's all kinds of, of resources that we, we provide uh, that they're going to want. In terms of data, I mean, the big draws are entertainment. Yeah, that's what, I was gonna, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the big draws are entertainment. But, you know, China's trying to stand up its own, you know, kind of... The Chinese government's first, second, third pr- concern is the stability of their own regime as it regards their, their population. They know that they're sitting on top of a, a huge tiger that they've caught by the tail and that they have to manage. And so a part of that management is going to include keeping it entertained. And so they're trying to develop that capability. That's one of the big draws. Um, well, let's just follow up. I mean, I always have this idea in my head, and you know, I'm a big sports fan, and uh, I have this thought that if, 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 if they won't let us uh, – communicate directly with their people, then, then, then fine, they, they can't see the NBA. We'll take it away from them. See, that's where I think the NBA made a huge mistake. Yeah. I think the NBA should, uh, this is why the Women's Tennis Association, I think, is killing it. No, I just, very, it's just brilliant. Very forceful. But the NBA should have recognized, one, this problem isn't going away. This is not just yeah. going to stop. And so what they should have said was like, okay, she, you don't want your, you know, 1.2 billion NBA fantasy basketball, fine, we'll turn it off. Exactly. Right, enforce the issue. Yeah. But they were cowards. Yeah. And but they didn't... I think they have more power than they realize because yeah. there's this demand. That's exactly and, right. I mean, when I think about people's lives, things like that really matter to them. Politics, the concept of free speech. But when you take something away that they yeah. were really liking and, and you, you blame it on, you know, China policies, then they're going to pay a price. Right, but that requires a level of... One, intellectual clarity, yeah. and two, moral commitment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those are lacking in the case of the NBA. Um, you mentioned earlier kind of this voting with your feet concept. It seemed like a lot of these companies might need some consumer pressure to care more about this protecting data and privacy concerns. So I'm curious, how would you kind of how would you explain to just an average person that uses a lot of these companies, like they know to stay off TikTok, but they're on the other ones? Like, how would you explain the costs of um, engaging with companies that are developing technologies or storing data in China? Okay, so specifically, how would I talk to American consumers yeah. about Chinese providers? About the risks that engaging ah, with the okay. companies well, yeah, poses Okay, that's easy. Um, here's the thing you need to note. Uh, so, number one, by law, um, every bit and byte of data that is collected on, stored on, transits, or in any other way touches a Chinese network, or the network of any Chinese subsidiary, wherever they operate, inside China or globally, by law, must be made available to the Chinese government at least on request. There's no exception. On top of that, the laws governing that those requirements specifically say that that cannot be disclosed by these companies 
two users. Right. But they've been kind enough to put it in English because they expect U.S. companies to abide by those laws. And so any U.S. company or Western company, any foreign company operating in China must also abide by that. That includes not using networking strategies and things like encryption that the government can't crack. So all of that is settled. That's not ambiguous. That's not unclear. It's not like an interpretive thing. That's settled. That's known. Okay. Well, that means that any user who uses a Chinese-derived app, like a TikTok, that's happening. Now, they'll make all kinds of assurances as to why that's not the case. They're lying. And it has to be that case. But let me just, uh, this is the way I like to really kind of poke people in the eye with it. Mm -hmm. If we woke up tomorrow and there was a Washington Post article that said China had secretly deployed 100 million sensors around the United States and that every time a, a, an American walked past one of these sensors, it collected your name, your home, your contacts, your keyboard patterns, your username and passwords, GPS, okay, all of that. There would be a collective freak out, rightly so, right? I mean, we would freak out. Well, TikTok has 100 million users in the United States, and it is exactly doing that. So we're coming to the end of our conversation. These are always great sort of informal chatter back and forth or banter. <laughs> I suppose I should use the right <laughs> yes, term yeah. for our show. Uh, but one question I like to ask to sum up is, you know, we've talked about a lot of problems mm. facing the country and regulating technology companies, cybersecurity, relations with China, our adversaries. Um, what is the thing that you're most concerned about um, and that we ought to be you ought to be devoting your research, various political people should be devoting some advocacy effort to in all of these issues. What's, what's something that's coming that's looking at it that we've don't better, we better pay attention to and address or it's going to be a big problem? Broadly, China, I think, is the thing that we either get that right or we're going to get a lot of things wrong. Um, and the way I would sum up the challenge is, is I think China, I think I think China is actually trying to pioneer a new model of governance. I think they think they've caught on to something that is better than Western-style democracy. They're trying to prove it, and they're trying to export it. And the idea is, is they think that they can marry up the wealth that is generated in their form of managed capitalism, coupled with the stability and strength of their form of technological totalitarianism. They, I think they have an ideological understanding of that thing. They're trying to prove it. As a, as, a, as, a, as a viable model of governance. And then if they can, they're going to export it. And I think there'll be a lot of people who sign up for it. So I think that's the, the big issue that, that we have to keep our eye on. Um, in an and, effort and I want to interrupt you there because I, I, I think you're right. And, and what's shocking to me is the extent to which some prominent Americans, like Ray Dalio, for instance, I don't know if you've seen the, what he's writing and saying, hmm. Or the Financial Times newspaper, if you read them, there's an inherent kind of treatment of China's approach to governing as if it's just another, you know, that's, that's one option and our option is a different option. And maybe they're, they're both equally valid ways of approaching governing. And that really troubles me. And, and, and am I right to be troubled by that? Or, or is there something different about Chinese culture that though people like that need to really are happier living in a unfree in world. No, I think you're right to be troubled by it. I chalk that up to the type of moral confusion that naturally accompanies the, the, the indulging of post-modernity that we've done over the last several decades. I, I think we've just, 
We have indulged a thinking about truth or the lack thereof, the, the relativity of morality. That is just so deeply integrated now into much American thinking that we've... Despite we've, the victory in the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that the Cold War, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mid-40s. A lot younger than me. Right? I'm mid-40s. And even the, even to me, the Cold War feels like something, oh, yeah, I've read about that. I yeah, watched a little yeah. bit of it. Right? But it, it's not, it doesn't feel proximate. Right? With me every day. Well, <laughs> but the point is, 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 is that, you know, and this goes into stuff Long that, twilight struggle. <laughs> that's right. Well, it, I'm not indifferent to it, but it's one of those things where things that other scholars at AI spend a lot of time thinking about, whether it be uh, failures in education, failures of moral, uh, moral and social development, like all the stuff that Yuval and Adam and, and Jonah and all those guys talk about, it's all right. And that has implications well beyond those disciplines, including how we think about foreign policy. And that's one of the reasons why, frankly, I came to AEI, is, is specifically to, to integrate these, these types of thinking, to work with these colleagues, because I think that we're not like one policy away from getting this right. There's a type of national renewal and, and institutional rebuilding that has to occur, certainly if we're going to thrive as a people, but also if we're going to secure the nation. And that's the way I approach it. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you, Klan, very much for being with us. Phoebe, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hello, my name's Christopher Scalia. I'm director of academic programs at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'd like to tell you about AEI's Summer Honors Program. The Summer Honors Program is an immersive learning experience in which exceptional undergraduates of all political stripes spend a week studying policy with top scholars, participating in wide-ranging conversations with other students from various backgrounds, and learning about policy careers in Washington, D.C. This year's Summer Honors Program offers 16 week-long courses covering foreign and defense policy, domestic policy, economics, the law, and political science. Our instructors include some of AEI's most renowned scholars, as well as distinguished college professors. This year's instructors include AEI's Yuval Levin, Corey Shockey, Michael Strain, James Capretta, Tim Carney, Brent Orell, Angela Rashidi, Michael Rubin, and John Yu. Six of the courses are offered through AEI's Initiative on Faith and Public Life and will integrate Christian faith, theology, and ethics into discussions about economics, public policy, and society. And did I mention that the program is fully funded? We cover travel costs and provide lodging, meals, and we offer a stipend. So if you're an undergraduate who's eager to study policy with renowned experts and to engage in substantive conversations with other students, or if you know a college student who fits that bill, I encourage you to take a look at our full list of courses and instructors and to learn more about this opportunity by visiting our website, just Google AEI Summer Honors Program. But don't delay. The final deadline for applications is March 1, 2022. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.